Please turn your Bibles to uh, Paul's letter to Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> we'll continue through our exposition of this letter of Paul to the church at Philippi. And this morning we will be in, uh, in verses 7 to 8 of chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 8 for context. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to think this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you, are all, you all are fellow partakers with me in this grace." For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter and just the, the themes that it brings forth, the instruction, the implications, the applications, the concepts and principles of joy and thankfulness, of fellowship. And Lord, as we look at these uh, couple verses help us to glean from them, help us to understand them, help us to draw from them the implications and applications for our lives to apply them, that we may grow in the knowledge and in the faith of Jesus Christ and his image. And please be with me as I preach your word, and I pray that my words would be your words and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Throughout the Bible, there is an aspect and a characteristic of mankind which is given great theological significance. It is that part of a human being which is most important, the part which reveals what and who a person really is, and yet, it is a part of man which only God accurately and precisely knows. It's that part of the human heart, the heart, the heart of man. We see it so much in Scripture, the teachings about the heart, inferences to the heart. Pastor Steve Byers um, who ministers in Lafayette, Indiana, and has contributed greatly to the biblical counseling movement. He writes this concerning heart, or the, the human heart. He says, the word heart is used over 700 times in Scripture. It refers to our inner man, the core of our being, our, our mission control center. The heart is a composite of thoughts, desires, emotions, and beliefs that guide our daily choices. We use our heart 
to worship something. Whether the God of heaven and earth or something else we believe will bring us comfort, joy, and satisfaction. The heart is very important. Uh, scripture puts great emphasis on the heart and the human heart. It speaks to the heart often. It's, it's why God told Moses to command the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6, uh, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. It's known as the Shema, a Hebrew word for hear, because that passage begins with hear, and that's a passage with, which almost uh, signifies Israel and, and, and sets them apart. It's part of their identity, so much so that um, they put that scripture, they roll it up and put it on um, their doorposts and, and uh, they, they put it everywhere. It's something that they, they were supposed to memorize. It's something that should guide them, that we shall love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our might. Those words shall be on our heart. God tells the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel sixteen seven as he is um, following his instructions and his commands to go anoint a king, God tells Samuel that he sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart, at the heart of man. As he would go to anoint David, a, a man after his own heart. Solomon warns young men in Proverbs 4.23 to guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Heart is very important. That's why Jesus says in Luke 645, that the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from the abundance of his heart. Those are just four passages, but as uh, we can see, as Steve Byers wrote, that heart is in over 700 passages of Scripture. Those are just four main ones. And from those, we can see that the heart is extremely significant in the Bible. And throughout the scripture, there are several commands, warnings, encouragements, instructions, examples, illustrations, implications, and applications, which all have to do with the heart. And in this passage here, we not only see Paul bear his heart, what's in his heart, his feelings, but we see him express his affections for the Philippians, primarily because of their partnership and support of him. We see him bear his heart. He says, I have you in my heart. We'll see that. But, but more than Paul bearing his heart, what's in his heart and how he feels for the Philippians, more than what's in his heart, we also see Paul reveal what a heart of true fellowship looks like. What a heart of true fellowship looks like. And as Paul continues to express his thanks to and for the church here at Philippi in this, this introduction, which is uh, the first 11 verses, this long introduction, which um, as we saw last week, that um, is full of thanksgiving, probably greater than any other introduction. 
We see in these two verses, verses 7 to 8, three elements of a heart of true fellowship. Three elements of Paul's heart, which is a heart of true fellowship. And the first element, the first element of a heart of true fellowship is that it has the right attitudes towards one another. As Paul says in verse 7, For it is only right for me to think this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Some translations, as you read that, that, beginning of, that beginning phrase of verse 7, some translations say, feel this way about you. And others say, think this way. It's somewhat divided. It's either feel this way or, or think this way or something um, slightly different but along those lines. And both are right. Because the word underlying either think or feel is this Greek word phroneo, and it could be translated either way. Feel or think, uh, one lexicon defines it as to have an opinion with regard to something. To think, form, hold an opinion, judge. To give careful consideration to something, to set one's mind on, be intent on. Or to develop an attitude based on careful thought. There's thinking and feeling all mixed in, emotion and cognition. But as we read that first phrase, Paul says, for it is only right for me to think this way about you all, we have to ask the question, what way of thinking, feeling, or attitude is Paul talking about? What is he talking about? And as you probably heard, many preachers have said this, just a, a principle of, of Bible interpretation, a principle of hermeneutics that when you come to the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? And that's true of the therefores, but it's also true of the fors, of the buts, of the such as, of the since, those conjunctions that uh, look backwards to what precedes. And so as we look back at the previous verses, we can see four right attitudes which Paul has for the Philippians. And by way of implication and application, these are also attitudes which we should have as well, such as an attitude of thankfulness. As he says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It's right for us to have an attitude of gratitude for other believers especially for those who actively support and serve in the work of gospel ministry, we should be thankful. We should be extremely thankful for them. For, uh, from you know, the missionary church planter all the way down to just um, you know, the uh, unassuming, uh, you know, obscure uh, church member who gives and serves in whatever way they can. We should have an attitude of gratitude for other believers, especially those who support and serve the work of gospel ministry. But it's also, it's also right, because Paul says, it is right for me to think this way about you all. He's saying this is the right way to think. This is the right way to feel. This is righteous thinking, righteous attitudes. It is right to thank God for not only believers, but in your every memory of them. That in your remembrance or your thinking about other believers, you're not 
contentious or bitter or frustrated or jealous or envious or covetous. But the first thought that comes to your mind is one of thankfulness, an attitude of gratitude. And so we see the first right attitude towards one another, which a heart of true fellowship has, is an attitude of thankfulness. But then second is an attitude of joy. In verse 4, as Paul goes on, he says that he always offers his prayers with joy. Every time he pray, prays for the Philippians, he, there, there's joy in his heart. It's, it's not, oh no, what have they gotten themselves into this time? I don't know where they're going. I'm, I'm concerned about them. Uh, or um, as you may have heard in, in church context, you know, so-and-so is really having a rough time. You need to pray for them. <laughs> like every time he thinks of the Philippians, it's joy. It's with joy. And certainly they had their trials. They had their challenges. But he's always joyful. He has an attitude of joy for them in his every prayer for them. And, and, and even in, in uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, he calls them his joy and crown. They are his joy. He has an attitude of joy for them. And third, Paul has an attitude of hope. He has an attitude of hope for them. As we read in verse 6, this is a, a, a verse which is loaded with so many implications and applications concerning the Christian life and, and our assurance. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And, and he has this attitude of hope for them, not, not a hope in them, not a hope in their circumstances, but a hope for them. This right attitude of a hope for one another, of a hope in God's working in and through them. This is an attitude that we should have towards other believers. It's the right attitude of a heart of true fellowship is to have hope. As even we, we read in 1 Corinthians 13 and, and that, that passage about love and defining love, that love hopes all things, bears all things. We are to hope the best for one another and, and not because of who they are, but because of who God is and God working in them. So we see that, that uh, of these four right attitudes towards one another, which um, we are to have, which a heart of true fellowship has, which Paul has for the Philippians. He has an attitude of thankfulness. He has an attitude of joy, an attitude of hope. And fourth, Paul has an attitude of trust. He has an attitude of trust. In verse 5, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, and then even in uh, verse 7, he says, you all are fellow partakers with me in this grace. He trusts them. He trusts them because of their support, because of their faithfulness, because of their track record for their service to him and to the church. There's an attitude of trust. This is a right attitude which we should have towards one another, and yet it's an attitude which uh, we often uh, are wanting in or lacking in. Trust is a currency of relationships. It's a currency of relationships, as many counselors have said. You can even hear uh, secular counsel, counselors will even affirm that, that trust is the currency of relationships. Your relationship with someone is only as good as your trust for them. This is, in a sense, true of your relationship with God as well, your, your trust for God. 
will, will impact your relationship with God. And yet we know um, other people and, and we know ourselves that we're not always trustworthy. Other people aren't always trustworthy. And in fact, um, no human being can be completely trustworthy in every category of life. Now, oftentimes our trust is based in, in a, a certain um, proficiency of another person or their ability, um, such as uh, trusting whether or not someone can uh, build something or uh, play an instrument or clean up after themselves or be on time. And just because you can't trust somebody in one category doesn't mean you can't trust them in another category, yet we should be, um, in a sense, uh, trustworthy as individuals, and, and we should hopefully trust other believers, especially in the more, most important things, such as their uh, faith in God, their faithfulness to God, their faithfulness to the church, their faithfulness to one another. We should be able to, to trust one another, and we should have an attitude of trust in the most important things, and this is an attitude which Paul um, exhibits. Paul can say in verse 6 that he is confident in God's continued work in them because he has witnessed it in their partnership in the gospel. And as he says in verse 7, that they are fellow partakers with him. Something which he would commend and command them to excel still more. You know, one of the, the um, key verses or passages concerning our sanctification, our growth in holiness is, is uh, probably a page over in Philippians chapter 2, which Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 12 to 13, he, he commands them, but also commends them here. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own, your, your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He commands them and commends them to work out their own salvation, to work out their own holiness and sanctification because God is working in them. You know, who, who's to do the work? They are, and, and God is. They're both working. But ultimately, it's God who does the work. But he begins that, that, that short passage as saying, just as you have always obeyed pointing to his, his trust in them. They've always obeyed. They have a track record of obedience, of faithfulness. And so Paul, in a sense, has an attitude of trust towards them, yet not um, complete 100% uh, trust in everything because he calls them to excel still more, to press on, to do more, to do better. Apostle Paul had the right attitudes of thankfulness, joy, hope, and trust towards the Philippians because of the work which God had done in his heart, but also because of the work which God had done in their hearts, which produced the same attitudes towards Paul and one another. So we see first in this passage that a heart of true fellowship has the right attitudes towards one another. And then second, that a heart of true fellowship has the right allegiances with one another. Verse 7, going on, For it is only right for me to think this way about you all, because 
I have you in my heart. Since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are fellow partakers with me in this grace. Paul's uh, pointing to, he's alluding to their allegiances, to their loyalty. The Philippians were loyal partners with Paul. They were loyal to him. And they were loyal to one another. Their allegiances were right. You know, one of the first things which I got upset over in the church as a new believer, and uh, something I would continue to see in just about every church and every ministry context since, is a lack of loyalty and a sense of teamwork in, in believers. And, and I, I don't know why, and, and some of it might have been presumption on my part, and I've grown to understand that everybody has different circumstances, different situations, different seasons of life. Um, but nonetheless, I would see this, and, and more so in, in young single people, this, this lack of loyalty and commitment, this lack of allegiance to the church, and I don't know, it may be a bit because of my background. Um, I played a lot of team sports when I was younger, and I spent 20 years in the military, and especially starting off in the Marine Corps where um, loyalty and commitment was beaten into me. Yeah, we were to be loyal. There was one phrase that I've heard over and over again from drill instructors, from sergeants, um, this phrase, this uh, a phrase of, of um, just demeaning, of rebuke, that they would constantly say, oh, I, I guess we're just individuals here. You just want to be an individual, huh? And for most Americans, they, they might hear that and they're like, yeah, I am an individual. I do whatever I want. I'm the captain of my own ship. Yeah, I, I just, I am an individual. I, lo- I love my life. I love my individuality. I love my freedom. Yeah, that's not good in the military. It's not good at all. And in fact, it's not good in any organization. And it's definitely not good in the church. You're part of a family. You're part of a team. And perhaps this individualism and this consumer mentality, it comes from our culture. It's, it's within all throughout our culture and in our media. You deserve this. Go ahead. Uh, you know, it's in our advertising. Uh, you know, even in uh, many uh, false churches, uh, you're your best life now. It's it's all about you. Church is all about you. But I was just, you know, as a new believer, and and still now, sometimes I am amazed at this lack of loyalty, this lack of commitment, this individualistic mentality that church is for me. Everybody here is for me, and and if I, I don't like this church, I can go to another church. I can just get up and move. And we live in a day and age, in a time and place um, where that's true. We're blessed in America and most metropolitan cities have several good biblical churches. And so if one church is, you know, 
all things being equal, they're, they're all doctrinally sound. And if one church, well, this church has better music than that church, or this church, that, the people are nicer, or, you know, um, they have snacks and entrance, and, you know, it, there, there's all sorts of things that you can divide over, and, and just you just go down the road to another church that, that's similar and, and doctrinally sound, and it's just... You know, just like anything else in, in, in our American life that just with careers, say statistically speaking, like people my generation, they, they jump careers every two or three years because it, it's easy. And sometimes that's to move up in your field, but it, it's, it's relatively easy. Just go to another company, go to another community, go to another church. The church in Philippi and, and just life in the ancient world, they didn't have that luxury. They didn't have that luxury to just pick up and go. They were the only church. There, there wasn't, you know, different denominations. And so if they had a, a problem, they had to deal with it. Just as we would read in Philippians chapter 4 that there's a relationship issue in the church that Paul addresses. He calls Euodia and Syntyche out. In the letter, in this letter that would be read in front of the whole church, he calls them out that you have a relationship issue, you have strife, you have um, something against one another, and you once were partners, you once were fellow workers, but now you need to fix this. You need to agree with one another. And, And that's a part of committing to a local church. And yes, it's true that, you know, when you're um, looking for a church, it, it's good to take your time and to visit other churches and, and to, to um, see which one you would want to commit to. But there's also a time when you need to commit. And you need to um, exhibit some allegiance and some loyalty to one another. Commit to that body. Until there's something that's so drastic, um, so sinful, that um, causes you to leave. Paul testifies here that the Philippians have demonstrated their loyalty to him and their right allegiances. The heart of true fellowship, a heart of true fellowship not only has the right attitudes towards one another, but it has the right allegiances with one another. And Paul testifies to these right allegiances in three areas. And first, we can see that in his trials and tribulations. They have exhibited right allegiances in trials and tribulations because he goes on, he says, since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all fellow partakers with me in this grace. He says, in my chains, in the midst of of my trials and tribulations, you have shown yourself loyal. You've shown yourself loyal in the midst of persecution In the midst of my persecution, Paul was being persecuted for his faith, in a sense, first by the Jews in in Jerusalem, in in which he um, stood before him, and and that um, was a catalyst to to this series of events that would lead him to prison in Rome, a, a place where he would also, in a sense, be persecuted by the Romans for his faith. And so the Philippians show show their loyalty in the midst of Paul's persecution, but there's also a sense that that they would be persecuted as well for associating themselves with him and with the rest of the apostles and with the Christian church. A heart of true fellowship has a 
right allegiances with one another in trials and tribulations. We're loyal in the midst of persecution or associations with those who are persecuted whenever it gets hard. And I think this should be fresh in our minds. It was only a couple years ago. A couple of years ago, probably one of the biggest illustrations of our time, of our lives, of um, loyalty, of allegiance. And a couple of years ago, there were many believers and um, professing believers who decided whether it was out of their own ignorance of the situation or the Bible or culture or fear of man. But nonetheless, they decided that they would show a greater allegiance to a wicked government and a wicked culture than they would to Jesus Christ and his church. Maybe because they hadn't had a fully formed biblical worldview. Maybe because they were babes in Christ. Maybe because they had one foot in the world and one foot in the church. But nonetheless, the result was the same. Is that when push came to shove, they showed that their allegiance was more with the government and the culture than with the church. That should never be the case. Jesus Christ is God and he died for us. He is worthy of our full allegiance. No matter what lies are told us, no matter what pressure comes, no matter what everybody else is doing, he's worthy of our full allegiance in thought, word, and deed. There's many people, even now, a couple years ago and even now, that didn't stand with the true church. They didn't stand on the Bible. They didn't stand on the word of God. They didn't stand with Christ. And some who are still not standing on the right side. And it may be because that they went out from us because they really weren't of us. And they'll still do you know, some Christian things like live stream or listen to podcasts, but are they in a local church? Where, where do their allegiances lie? A heart of true fellowship has the right allegiances with one another in the midst of trials and tribulations, but it also has the right allegiances with one another in the gospel. In the gospel, and this is a key. As Paul says, both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are fellow partakers with me in this grace. In this grace. They showed their right allegiances in the gospel. In whatever defense Paul was making, the defense before unbelieving Jews or before the pagan Romans, the reason why he was standing trial, or in the confirmation of the gospel, in the fruits of the gospel, in people getting saved and joining the church and leaving behind their pagan religion and their pagan backgrounds, that the Philippians were willing to stand with Paul. They were there through thick and thin in whatever the gospel would bring on. As Paul writes, the cross is a stumbling block. It's an offense. It's an offense to those who would not believe. He says that they were there. 
They were there in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, which means that they were not only supporting Paul monetarily, they were supporting him through prayers, they were supporting him by sending Epaphroditus to see how he was doing, but they were also, in a sense, supporting him by living according to the gospel, by following his commands, by proclaiming this gospel. They showed their allegiances in the gospel. But third, they, they showed their right allegiances with one another in the grace of God. A heart of true fellowship has the right allegiances with one another in trials and tribulations, in the gospel, and in the grace of God. Because he says, you all are fellow partakers with me in this grace. This grace. We have to ask a question right here. What, what grace is Paul talking about? What grace is Paul talking about? And in a sense, it is looking backwards to um, his chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Everything that comes before it alludes to what this grace is. But we still must answer the question, what is this grace that Paul is talking about? Is it the grace of God and salvation? I think that's part of it. But I don't think that's all of it. I think we get a clearer picture as we look at this passage, which Paul um, testifies about God's work in his life in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, you can turn there and see this, that as Paul is instructing the Corinthians on uh, the resurrection and the, the, the gospel, and he says, For I deliver to you what is of first importance, that Christ Jesus died for our sins. He died for our sins, and then he'll, he'll go on and he'll um, elaborate on the resurrection, on uh, the uh, new life in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, and not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. See, Paul is talking as he tells the Philippians, you, are, you all are fellow partakers with me in this grace. It's not just the grace of God in salvation, but it is the grace of God in ministry. Of being called into ministry. That the grace Toward him, as he says, did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. That, that it, God's grace, it, it wasn't enough just for God to save Paul, but he was gracious in calling Paul to be an apostle. And, and even as Paul would um, uh, allude to later, um, to suffer for the sake of Christ. That he would, in a sense... See that as a grace, as a grace. Sometimes we don't see ministry or service or even suffering as a grace, but it is. Because in the midst of serving, of laboring for Christ, of suffering for Christ, there's a greater intimacy with Christ. There's a greater knowledge of Christ. There's a greater understanding of Christ. It is a grace of God, and Paul is speaking about this grace of God in ministry. He sees it as grace. You know, I, I remember my first chapel service in seminary. A brand new seminary student 
going to the master's seminary and just excited and um, terrified at the same time of the amount of work and, and just the high calling. And I remember my first chapel service, excited, in first semester, and John MacArthur um, preached to all the students, as he usually does in the first, chap- first and last chapel services. And his main point in that message, which I will never forget, and I was kind of shocked at hearing it, was that ministry is a mercy. Ministry is a mercy. And on one level, you can understand that. Ministry is a mercy. But then he went on to boldly and directly say to the whole student body, 300-plus students, preachers in training, he said, you don't deserve to preach the New Testament. You don't deserve to preach the New Testament. Ministry is a mercy. This is a mercy from God. Because in preaching the New Testament, in laboring for Christ, in proclaiming His name, you see Him more clearer, you see Him more fuller, you understand Him more deeper. There's a greater intimacy. And there's greater rewards. There's also greater challenges and trials. This, this is a principle which the Apostle Paul embraced, and it's, it's one he never forgot. It's one that he proclaimed to others, that ministry is a mercy and a grace of God. It's a grace of God because had, had, had uh, you know, Christ just saved the Apostle Paul like, like any other believer, which is miraculous in and of itself and, and great in and of itself, that would be enough. That would be enough for Paul. But God's grace abounded to him in calling him into the ministry, calling him to be an apostle, calling him to be a missionary and a church planter. And he saw many things throughout his life and did many things for the sake of Christ. And he sees it all as a grace. And he tells the Philippians that they are fellow partakers with me in this grace through their support. When you give to missionaries or mission organizations or, or a, a good church, you are, in a sense, partnering with those ministers. And, and you are also, in a sense, as the um, Bible would say, that you are making friends for yourself for eternity. And there is, in a sense, that your, your money will, in a sense, uh, uh, be a blessing not just to the ministers, to the ministry which you're giving to, but the people that that ministry impacts. You're partners with them. You're fellow partakers with the minister in that grace. And the same is true for your service and for your labor. Last week I shared this quote from D.A. Carson who wrote that, The heart of true Christian fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision, namely to the gospel. And that self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision of the gospel can only flow out of a heart which acknowledges, embraces, and cherishes the infinite grace of God in the gospel. It begins with the gospel and understanding the grace of God in the gospel and that grace of God that flows out into a heart which serves, which is loyal, which has the right attitudes towards one another, which is willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We have seen in these 
this short passage that the first element of a heart of true fellowship is that it has the right attitudes towards one another. The second element of a heart of true fellowship is that it has the right allegiances with one another. And the third element of a heart of true fellowship is that it has the right affections for one another. Verse 8, as Paul says, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul has bared his heart, and in his heart he shows that he has the right affections for the Philippians. His heart of true fellowship has the right affections for one another. And first, it has affections which are true. Affections which are true, affections that aren't superficial, affections which aren't temporary, but affections which are true because God, because uh, Paul, rather, he, he almost um, puts God on the witness stand. He says, for God is my witness. And this is something that even throughout the Old Testament, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not um, swear an oath, uh, just... Um, Flippantly, he in a sense um, says, God is my witness that I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He, he's saying, um, I swear by God, I swear by God that I have the affection of Christ Jesus for you. God is my witness. He has affections which are true, which are sincere. And remember, um, you know, it's not just that his affections are true, but I, I remember um, several preachers and, and pastors have written this, that um, affections themselves don't lie. Affections don't lie. Whether the, that affection is, in a sense, uh, true for somebody, that affection in and of itself is true because it's true of the heart. It shows the true nature of the heart. So an affection which, in a sense, may seem superficial towards one another, it will reveal the fact that that true affection is for oneself rather than for another person. The, the, the real affection, it doesn't lie. If, if your heart, and this is why the, the Bible speaks so much to the heart, that's why, why Jesus said, out of the heart flow all sorts of evil. Because that's what's in the heart. And so your, your true affections, your real affections, they don't lie. They will always, in a sense, eventually manifest themselves in thoughts, words, actions, and behaviors. If you're a, truly a selfish, self-centered person, that will eventually manifest itself. Your affections are on yourself. Your affections are for things or experiences or um, just worldly stuff. It will eventually manifest itself. Affections are true. But your affections for one another should be definitely true. And we all probably definitely need work in that area. But Paul shows that a heart of true fellowship has the right affections for one another and that it exhibits um, affections which are true for one another. But second, it also exhibits affections which are deep and sincere. He says, how I long for you all. I long for you all. 
with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this word affection, it's not, it's a good word, it's a good translation, but the, the Greek word, splanknon, is a little bit fuller explanation. This is something in the Greek thought that um, it, it alluded to the feelings in one's stomach or bowels, like to the depth of my being, in the pit of my stomach. You, you ever you feel so distraught over someone or some situation that you can't eat, your stomach churns? You can't keep anything down. You, you feel um, either some grief or, or even great joy and love over someone, and you, you almost literally feel it in your stomach. This is what the, this word was getting at. This is what the Greeks were getting at, that um, this deep, sincere longing and affection that goes down to the pit of one's stomach. This is an affection which Paul is talking about, a deep and sincere affection for these people, affection of Christ Jesus. Third, affections which are divine. Paul has not only affections which are true and affections which are deep and sincere, but affections which are divine because he says he longs for them all with the affection of Christ Jesus, almost alluding to the fact that this affection did not begin with me didn't start with me. This is an affection which is divine. There's a sense that, um, you know, we come to church and we all come and God calls us out of the world. We are the ecclesia, called out ones, called out from the world into this assembly, called out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light. And as God calls us out um, from the world, he calls us out from several different backgrounds, different demographics, different ages, um, different interests, different personalities, and he calls us into one to be unified as one. And so what love we have for one another, the unity we have for one another, is in a sense, it's initiated by God and it is divine. Because you have to be honest that there's many people in church, have you never been a Christian, you might not interact with person because you know nothing necessarily wrong with them they're just different they're different than you they have different interests different hobbies different backgrounds they come from different places but God calls us into one body and he gives us affections for one another he gives us a supernatural love for one another these affections from Christ and this these are the affections which Paul is um, expressing to the Philippians as he bears his heart of true fellowship, a heart that has the right affections for one another, affections from Christ. This is what would drive him in ministry. This is what would fuel his ministry, what would drive him to continue on, to labor for the sake of others, to labor for even those um, unsaved people who he has yet to meet and preach the gospel to. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5. Well, this is what guides him, what controls him, what motivates him. It's, it's what gets him up in the morning. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us. It controls us. Speaking of the apostles, of the disciples, the love of Christ controls us. The affections of, of Christ controls us. 
Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. It's not my love for Christ that controls me, or my love for Christ that fuels me, but Christ's love for me. Christ's love for me, the affections which um, started with Christ. God loves us because he loves us. God doesn't love us because anything in us or anything that we could do, should do, or will do. He loves us just because of who he is. Not because of who we are or who we would become. He loves us because of who, who he is. These affections which Paul has, they are divinely initiated. They're divine affections. They come from Christ and they control him. They are the affections of Christ. They're they're exactly what Christ felt. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we see this because here's the same word in these affections which Jesus Christ uh, displays. Affections with Paul, which Paul himself would display. And as Jesus in this chapter, he's healing many people. He's healing, he's casting out demons, he's answering questions. People are coming to him. The, the, the Pharisees are, in a sense, um, criticizing him, saying there's, there's some other way he is doing all these miracles. It, it must be the power of Satan. And Jesus is trying to tell them that he is God, showing them that he is God, but also showing his affection for these people. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then this, seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Affection, splanknon. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. He was broken over them. He was concerned about them. He he had a, a deep affection for the Israelites, for the lost, for these people. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he wanted to gather them into his fold. And this is why he goes on and he says, because he was so brokenhearted, because he was so affectionate towards these people, he uh, provided the only solution which could cure their problem, could cure their ailment of sin. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest or harvest to send out workers into his harvest. He in a sense, tells his disciples, These people need the gospel. They need the gospel. They need hope. They need eternal life. They need eternal hope. They need a, a hope that transcends their earthly circumstances. They need a divine love. They need a divine affection. Jesus had the heart of true fellowship. He had right attitudes towards one another. He had right allegiances with one another. He had right affections for one another. 
wherever they lined up, whether they were with him or, or, or were not. But he had deep longing for his people and for sinners. Jesus was brokenhearted over the fallen state of his people, over the effects of sin, over their lost condition. This is the same affection Paul had, and not just for the Philippians, but also for lost sinners, and especially for the Jews. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is a Christ according to the flesh who is God over all, blessed forever, amen." He's saying, in a sense, I have such a deep affections for the Jews, for the Israelites, that I'm willing to be accursed to go to hell for their sake. This is the affection of Christ Jesus for his people because he, in a sense, did go to hell for our sake. He did experience hell for our sake. He experienced the full wrath of God on the cross for our sake. He was accursed for our sake. He was cast out for our sake. He was crushed for our sake. This is the affection of Christ. This is the affection which Paul has. This is a, 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 a right affection which we should have towards one another. A deep affection. You know, there's some of you here... You may have been in church your whole life. Some of you here may have read the Bible, have heard the stories. You've no doubt heard the gospel clearly preached, and yet you still have not responded to it. You still have not obeyed the command of the gospel to repent from your sins and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. You're in a sense like the Israelites, which Jesus was broken over. You're in a sense like the Jews, which Paul was broken over. He, he, he wanted them to come to faith. And I want you to come to faith. I want you to quit playing games with God. To quit playing games with church. To quit playing games with the gospel and with the Bible. And quit going through the motions. Commit. Come to Christ for salvation. Speaking of judgment in the day of the Lord, Peter writes in 2 Peter, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Bible says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. As many preachers have said before, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the day of salvation. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the time to repent. Today is the time to seek Christ. Today is the time to come to Christ. To seek the Lord while he may be found. To call upon him while he is near. To let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
Jesus had deep compassion and affection for sinners. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance and faith. And he calls you to come, to receive him, to seek him while he may be found, so that you might have the same heart as he has, so that he might take out this heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that feels, that longs to obey his law, and that has right attitudes, right allegiances, and right affections for one another. This heart of true fellowship, this heart of compassion, this heart for God. So the call is to come. And if you have come, if you do know him, the call is to live in light of that fact, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel to which you have been called and saved to have this heart of true fellowship, which we see here in this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for redemption from our sins. And yet, Lord, we must confess, we must confess that we don't always live in light of the gospel. In fact, many of us, and perhaps most of us, have grown too familiar with the gospel. We've grown too familiar with salvation. We've grown too familiar with church, too familiar with the Bible. We, we treat holy things as common. We are fickle. And because of that, we, we don't display the right heart. We don't display the right allegiances. We don't display the right affections. So Lord, please do a work in our hearts to help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And Lord, we especially pray for those in our midst who do not know you, that they would come to you for salvation from sin and to seek you while you may be found, to call upon you while you are near, to experience eternal life. Lord, we thank you for this passage, for this day, for one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.